presence for everyone. We're glad that you're here. I hope you brought your Bible with you and are eager to study with us. We're continuing and, in fact, concluding our series of five studies. That is a home Bible study series that the other elders have asked me to present, and we bring that to a close this evening. We're ready for lesson number five. I want to remind you, though, and hopefully we'll make use of this series in one way or the other. And I know I've mentioned this before, but just for repetition's sake, I want to mention again the ways that we can make use of this material. Uh, hopefully what the, the design of this was is to remind us in light of our theme for the year of bringing others to Christ and trying to reach out and invite others to come to the Lord, that you may take this material and develop your own and teach someone uh, what needs to be taught. Um, hopefully you can download this material from our website. And our goal there is that you might take it and even use it yourself uh, as you go and teach someone else. But other ways in which you can use this is set up a home Bible study, either in person or by Zoom, and uh, I'd be glad to help you with that and teach that if, I, if you need me to. But one of the ways in which this can be used very easily, material will be posted by Tuesday, the first four, and an introduction is already on my YouTube channel. And so if you would direct your friend there, they can watch it themselves, or better yet, if you would sit down with them and watch these studies so that you can answer questions and pause the video and pursue a passage a little bit, that would be very helpful, I think. So if you're uncomfortable teaching yourself and you say, I want to sit and watch, then go to that channel and direct your friend uh, there to that. So let's look now at our fifth lesson. Let's review as we always do. I do this in the home Bible study. If I'm setting down so that I can keep building on that foundation I've been talking about. The first three of these lessons we call foundational lessons. We've set a foundation on which we build the house as we talk about salvation and we talk about the church. Tonight we want to talk about the church in the Bible. But let's review the foundation and the first part of the building we built on that foundation. In the first study we talked about the Bible being the word of God. And our whole point of that is that we can have confidence that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. If Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore there is a God, and His Word is true, and we gave abundant evidence that indeed Jesus is raised from the dead, and therefore we conclude that there is a God, and the Word of God indeed is true. Well, furthermore, we notice the inspiration of the Scriptures. We notice that the Scriptures are inspired of God. All of the Bible is inspired of God. Every word of it is inspired of God. So therefore, we ought to accept it. We ought to believe it. And we ought to seek to understand it and do whatever it says. Now, that's important as we get to the fourth lesson, as we've already noted. And in the second lesson, we talked about making application of the Bible to us. And we raised the question, can we understand? Yes. Can we understand it alike? Absolutely. We saw that it makes a difference what a person believes in religion, and there is a distinction in the Old and New Testaments, and we live under the New. And that the Word of God has the authority and the power of God behind it. So when we take our written revelation and read it, it's all the same as if God was thundering it out of heaven. In the third of the five lessons, we talked about the theme of the Bible. And the theme of the Bible is because there is a problem with sin, then the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about who he is, that he is our Redeemer, and his deity, and evidence of his deity and his being raised from the dead. And then we talked about his crucifixion, his death, and his sacrifice, and how that message of Christ the Redeemer is the golden thread that runs all through the Bible. No matter what book we're looking at, every book deals with somehow of the, the uh, redemption found in Christ. 
Well, then we talked in our last study about what the Bible says about salvation. And this might be a good time when if I were having a home Bible study with someone and they were not baptized in the last lesson to go back and remind them of some things here. Not to put pressure on, but just to remind them of what the New Testament teaches here. So I go back and I talk about sin again and how that sin is the problem that's, that is the need for salvation and that we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, we're saved by faith. Ephesians 2, same passage. And then we talked about the conditions that are laid down. And I might, in review, just remind them, if they haven't already done that, that this is what the Lord would tell them to do. Now let's talk in the last about the church in the Bible. The theme is back to the Bible, so we want to talk about not just what the Bible says about being saved, but what about the church in the Bible? That's going to be important for us to leave with them before we end our home Bible study. Now, let's start with... As we talk about, we're going to see five different things. We're going to talk about what the church is. We're going to see that there is but one. We're going to talk about identifying the church, where all the denominations came from, and then we'll touch briefly on life in the church. So let's start, first of all, with what the church is. Keep in mind, your, your prospect that you're studying with very likely may not understand much about the church, and the term church may mean something different to them than it does to you and to the uh, writers of the New Testament. So let's spend some time defining the church. So what is the church? Well, first of all, the church is not a building. We talk about the church on the corner and turned by the church on the corner, but that's just a meeting house. That's not the church we read about in the New Testament. Obviously, it's not a social club. This is not just some club to be a part of, and it's good to be a part of it, but you don't have to be. Nor is it some kind of human institution. But the church is people. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul made havoc of the church. How did he do that? By persecuting men and women. So what he did to the men and women is what he did to the church. So the church is made up of people. That's what the church is. It's not a building, not a club, but it's people. Furthermore, it's people who are saved. Not just any people, but it's people who come into a saved relationship with God. And so I might remind my prospect that when you do what we talked about in our last study and you are baptized, now you are saved, and those who are saved are those who are in the church. So if they had been baptized, I would tell them, now you're in the Lord's church. Because here's what the passage says. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 7, the Lord adds to the church daily those who were being saved. So those who are being saved and those who are in the church are one and the same people. Well, furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 23, Christ is the Savior of the body. Those whom he promises to save are those in the body. Those in the body are those he promises to save. Well, the same book, chapter, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 16 here, the Bible talks about that they might be reconciled unto God in one body by the cross. So those who are reconciled unto God are in the one body. So all of those passages are agreeing one with the other. The term church, as we find it in, for example, all of these passages, but let's start with Acts 2 and verse 47. It comes from this word ecclesia, which simply means called out. Those who are called out. Now, it sometimes is used with those who are called out for a common purpose, like in an assembly. But it has reference to those who have been called out of sin and out of darkness into salvation. Furthermore, we won't take the time to develop this. I might take a little more time in the home study itself. But in Acts chapter 11, those who were in the church at Antioch were the same people who believed and turned to the Lord, who were disciples and who were also called Christians. 
And we went through that on Wednesday night, if you were here, and so you know that passage and how that thread goes through, Acts chapter 11. So what I've done from that is try to demonstrate the church is people who are indeed in a saved relationship. Now why is that important? It's very likely that your candidate may be one who thinks I was saved and then now I can join the church. I was saved by faith and then I can join the church by being baptized. And that's not what the New Testament indeed teaches. So now I know what the church is. Let's talk about the fact that there is but one. When we talk about the church of the Bible, we need to understand there is but one. The Lord only built one church. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Notice that singular in number. He promised to build a church. He didn't promise to build churches, but he promised to build his church. Now let's add to that the fact that Paul said there is one body. Ephesians 4 and verse 4, in a whole list of ones, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He mentions at verse 4, there is one body. So let's go over to the book of Ephesians. This will be important if you're studying with your friend. To go to Ephesians and show them the scriptures, not just assert something, but to show them, let's let not just us give them a definition of the body. The text says here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body. Let's let that same writer of Ephesians define in chapter 1 what the body is. So let's go to chapter 1. What is the body? Verse 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's follow the, the thought. The text says there is one body. The same writer says the body is the church. The conclusion is there is one church. Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is one. And so there is one church. Now let's see how the term church is used in the Bible. It's used in more than one sense. There are two primary senses in which it's used, and understanding that helps us to harmonize some text. And what we mean by that, there are going to be that you'll find that mentions church as, plural. And then there are passages that mention church, singular. And how do you harmonize those? Well, the Bible uses the term church in a universal sense. What does the Bible mean by church when it uses it in a universal sense? This has reference to all of God's people, the saved, all over the world are in that same church. And so those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we're in that one church. And the person who is in Hong Kong, who is a member of the church, is in that same church. The person in California is in the same church. The person in Canada is in that same church and all around the world. All in that same church. It has reference to individual Christians who are members and not local churches who become members. In other words, the universal church is not made up of other churches joining membership, but every individual who is a Christian is a member of that universal church. The church in the universal sense has no organization. There is no organization other than Christ being the head, Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 18. Now let's look at a couple of passages where the term church would be used and have to be used in a universal sense. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Was he talking about a particular local congregation? Was he talking about the church at El Bethel? And not talking about any other local church? Or was he talking about the church in the universal sense? Well, it's obvious what the answer to that is. Well, another passage would be in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, the Lord to the church daily, those who were being saved. So on a daily basis, people are being added to that church. Well, that's not only necessarily true of a local church, but it is, it was, in Acts 2.47, concerning the church in a universal sense. 
But the Bible uses the term church in a local sense. How does that distinguish from the universal sense? This has reference to God's people, the saved, in a certain place. The church in a certain place, that is in a certain location, does have organization. For example, we'll read later, Philippians 1 and in verse 1, there was the church at Philippi which had bishops and deacons. So the church in a local sense does have organization. Now here are passages that obviously have to talk about the local church. We read about the church of God which is at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 2. Well, all of God's people all over the world were certainly not at Corinth. And we read in Romans 16, 16 about the churches of Christ salute you. And we read of the seven churches of Asia, Revelation 2 and 3. And we read about the church at Syncria, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 1. So as we peruse through the New Testament, we read about a church at Corinth, we read about one at Thessalonica, we read about a church at Ephesus, and a church at Rome, and a church at Antioch. And so churches were scattered all across the Bible world. So the Bible uses the term church in a universal sense and in a local sense. Now we have to understand that because we'll find passages that mention seven churches, but over here there's one church. We might read of the churches, plural, but then we read of one church, one body. And understanding that distinction will help us. Now let's talk about denominationalism. In contrast to that one church, let's define denominationalism. Denominationalism, or the word denomination, simply means the act of naming a name, a designation, the name of a class, of group, or classification, the American Heritage Dictionary says. So the idea of the word denomination is the idea of dividing into various segments or into groups or into classes. As you recall, those of you who are older who've been in banking or uh, did banking years ago, remember that you used to go to the bank and if you cashed a check with reference to money, that the, the, the bank would raise the question concerning the cashing of your check, what denomination? They weren't asking what church you were a part of. What they were asking was, how do you want your money back? You have a $100 check, how do you want that? <clears throat> do you want it in ones or fives or tens or 20 or 50s or hundreds? How do you want that? Well, here's three things that were implied. Now, this is important because as we apply the same thing to churches, then the same principles are going to apply. Your friend can see this illustration. Now, what that implies is when they would ask what denomination, that implies division. That implies that money is divided into various categories. Now let's just suppose, for illustration's sake, that money only came in the currency of having $1 bills. We had no twos, we had no fives, we have nothing else, we have no tens, twenties, etc. All we have is $1 bills. That's the only currency we have. And you take a check that's for $100 and they say, uh, what denomination or how do you want that? Well, duh, there's only one thing I can get, $1 bills. That's all there is. But the very fact they would ask what denomination suggests that money is divided into various segments, various classifications. Secondly, here is something else that was implied, that one is as good as another. It doesn't mean that a one is equal to a hundred or a fifty is equal to a five, but one category is equal to the other. So which is better, to have five twenties or two fifties? The categories are the same. That is, one is as good as the other. Thirdly, it implied there's no wrong choices. Some people like having a hundred dollar bill, and others like to have two fifties, and others like to have twenties, and others would like to have a hundred ones. Some would like to have twenty-five. There are no wrong choices. You're not going to be rebuked or condemned because you chose ones instead of fifties. 
Now, those same three principles are going to apply when we talk about religion. When we talk about denominationalism, here's what this pictures. The picture before you is not in the Bible. This is not the biblical picture. And I always want to point that out to my prospect. This is not the biblical picture. This is the human picture of the Lord's people, the Lord's church. The idea is the larger shaded area represents God's people, the saved, and they're divided into various flavors or various segments. So as we people would ask you, what denomination are you? What they're asking is, they're implying the same three things. They're implying, first of all, God's people are divided. Some of God's people happen to be over here in Church of God, some happen to be in the Baptist, some are in the Church of Christ, some are Presbyterian, some are Nazarene, some are Adventist, etc., on around 5,000 or more churches. It implies, secondly, one is just as good as the other. If you are a Baptist or you're a Catholic, it makes no difference. If you're a Methodist or you're a Presbyterian, it really doesn't make any difference because, after all, one's just as good as the other. And thirdly, there are no wrong choices. You're not to be condemned for joining this church or joining that church or joining another church. Same three principles apply. This is the concept that man has concerning the Lord's people. Now then, let's talk about identifying the church in a sea of denominationalism. So because of denominationalism out there, and we're coming back to that in just a moment, then how do I find that one church when there are so many different churches that believe and practice different things? How do I find the New Testament church? Now again, you might use a different illustration, but this one your friend can see. Let's just suppose that you walk into a business somewhere, maybe a mall, and you find a mother that is beside herself because she's lost her little boy. And so what you want to do, being the good Samaritan that you are, you want to help your, your friend find her lost boy. And you say, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll help you find your lost boy. So what you do is you tear out through the mall and you say, after all, I'll find a boy. One boy is just as good as another boy. I'll find the first one I find. One's as good as another. And what you'll get from your friend when you tell them that is they'll smile like that's silly. But you see, that's how people look for churches, isn't it? One just as good as another. But they didn't work in finding the boy, did it? So you say, well, no, that doesn't work. That, you, you're right. That's silly. So then what I'll do, I'll tear out through the mall and I'll find the boy that I like. The age that I like, the size that I like, that has the color hair I like, has the name I like. I'll find the boy that I like and I'll bring him back and give him to you. And the mother's going to be beside herself because one boy's not just as good as another. She wants her boy. Not what you like, she wants her boy. Well, yeah, you're right, that's silly. Uh, your, your prospects are going to laugh at that. Well, I'll tell you what we do. I'll tell you, let's go through the mall now and take a poll and let's find the most popular boy throughout the whole mall because that's got to be the right one, the most popular one. We see, that didn't work in finding boys. And yet that's exactly how people go about finding churches. They decide they want to be religious. One is as good as another. I'll find the church that I like. I'll find the most popular church that everybody likes, and that's the church that I'll find. But that doesn't work in finding lost boys. Now, how are you going to find this lost boy? Well, what you're going to have to do is go to the source that knows and find the identifying characteristics of the boy. You might not know the identifying characteristics. So you go to the mother. And she says, my boy is 10 years old, 70 pounds, 15 inches tall. His name is Tommy. His hair is brown. His eyes are green. Now, it doesn't make any difference if you like the name Tommy. It doesn't make any difference if you like brown hair and green eyes. It doesn't make any difference about that. You're going to go look for the one who meets those characteristics. So you tear out through them all again. 
And you go and you find the boy that uh, is about 10 years old and about that size, but his name is Jimmy, and you come back and say, after all, names don't matter. And the mother's going to say, names do matter because I didn't give him the name Jimmy. Okay, that's not my boy. Oh, okay, so names are important. So you go through and you find the boy whose name is Tommy, but he's 12 years old because all that really matters is it's got the right name. Well, that doesn't work either. And see, what you're beginning to tell your prospect is the way that people go about finding churches doesn't work when it comes to finding anything else. It only seems to work in religion. So when have I found the boy? I found the boy when I found this 10-year-old boy, 70 pounds, 15 inches tall. His name is Tommy's hair is brown. His eyes are green. And bring him back to his mother, and he meets every one of the single characteristics that she has laid down. Now, if we can understand that, we can understand finding the New Testament church. So what, how do I go about finding the New Testament church? I don't decide what I like. I go to where the source is. I go to someone who knows what find characteristic, and that's going to be God in the pages of the New Testament. My preacher may not know. My friend may not know. My family may not know, but the Bible does tell us what the identifying characteristics are. Now, in interest of time, I'm going to go through these rather quickly here, but I would be quite slow and methodical in setting down in my home Bible study. So what I'm looking for is a church whose founder is Christ. There are churches that will quickly tell you, our church was founded by John Wesley. Well, I know immediately, that's, I don't need to look for any other characteristic. Just like looking for the boy, I see a boy that's 15 years old, I don't need to ask him what his name is, I know he's not the right boy. He didn't meet one of the characteristics. So I'm looking for a church whose founder is Christ. I'm looking for the church that began in AD 33 in Jerusalem. Now there are churches that will tell you we started in, in 1609. No, one said, no, we started in 1511. Well, that's not the church you read about in the New Testament. I'm looking for a church whose name harmonizes with the New Testament. We talked about this on Wednesday night. The name Church of God is certainly a scriptural name. 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 2, Church of Christ would be a scriptural name. Romans 16, Church of the Firstborn, Hebrews 12. But when I find a church that's named after a man and wears a man's name or wears a practice that I don't find written in the New Testament, then I haven't found the New Testament church. I'm looking for a church whose organization fits the Bible. Universally, there is none. So when a church tells me, you see, our headquarters is in uh, Rome, Italy. Another one said, no, ours is in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, Utah. Another one says, ours is in Cleveland, Tennessee. Another one says, ours is in New York. Well, then that's not the church you read about in the New Testament. I'm looking for a church whose local churches have elders and deacons, Philippians 1 and in verse 1, whose work involves the preaching of the gospel, edifying of the saints, and the relieving of those who are needy saints. And I find a church that's involved in another work other than those three, like recreation, then that's not the church you read about in the New Testament. Even though it might have the right name, it's not the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. I'm looking for a church whose worship fits the pattern of the New Testament. They sing praises unto God, they pray, they offer the Lord's Supper. There's giving and there's the, the worship of studying through the Word of God and preaching of the Word. Those acts of worship are involved. When I find a church that's doing more than that or less than that, I have not found the New Testament. So what I'm trying to do is give my friend, a pro, my prospect, a idea how to go about finding the New Testament church just like finding the lost boy. Now let's talk about where all these churches came from in the first place. How did every one of these churches come about? And what is it that makes it so confusing with reference to looking out in the sea of denominationalism? Where did all of this come? Well the Bible foretold of departures. 
And again, I would be a little more methodical as taking a little more time reading in every detail in the home Bible study. But this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 3 says, the day, will, uh, the day will not come, that is the coming of the Lord will not come unless there comes a falling away first. All I'm trying to see is the Bible had foretold and prophesied that there was going to be a departure from the Lord. Well, the same thing was said in 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 1. Some would depart from the faith. There's going to be departures from the faith. And Paul warned the elders of the church at Ephesus that after he would arise, men, uh, after he left, men would arise speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after them. So what I'm learning from those texts is that there's going to be departure. And indeed there was. Well, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 1. Paul said, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The footnote would say, run out as leaking vessels. That describes a slow, gradual process to apostasy. That can happen individually, that can happen as a group, that can happen as a church. That can happen as a movement. That apostasy comes very slow and very gradually, like leaking of a vessel. Doesn't happen quickly, but it happens very slowly. So where all these churches come from? We didn't have one church in the New Testament, and then all of a sudden you have 5,000 different, or 10,000, or 20,000 different churches. It happened gradually. How did it happen? Well, I'm going to give you a thumbnail description of this and not the detail, because that's not our purpose here. But I'm going to give my friend, as I'm teaching this home Bible study, the gist of how the apostasy developed. So here's how it developed. In the New Testament, what we had was a local church that was overseen by its elders, Philippians 1, and in verse 1, Acts 20, and verse 28. And you'd have another local church that had the same kind of thing. And that was certainly scriptural, and that was the pattern of the New Testament. But gradually, over time, they begin to single out one of those elders as being a presiding elder at first, they would call him. And he would be maybe somewhat the chairman or the leader, and then gradually he gained a little more authority until finally the presiding elder had authority over the other elders. And they began to call him the bishop. Now, in the New Testament times, a bishop and an elder were one in the same begin to make a distinction. So you have the bishop who was over the elders, and then you had the elders under that bishop. Well, that takes a little while to get to that point. That didn't happen overnight. Well, over a period of time, those bishops in each one of those churches uh, would get together of a number of local churches, and they would form a group or a council of bishops to get together. Maybe if we got together, all the bishops from the various churches would get together, then we could discuss what needs to be done in the churches. And so then now they have a council. Well, already we have an apostasy because we're contrary to the New Testament. You don't have a council of bishops over the churches. So they've already left the pages of the New Testament. But then as these bishops are beginning to meet, they repeat the same process. They begin to look at one of those as kind of a presiding bishop. And he has a little more authority and gains a little more authority as time goes on. And he begins to have authority over all the other bishops. So you have a group of bishops meeting here, and a group of bishops meeting there, and a group of bishops meeting over here, and you have these presiding bishops, and then they give him the title of cardinal. Well, then you have cardinals from different areas that begin to meet, and so you have a council of cardinals that are over the bishops, and the bishops are over the elders, and the elders are over the churches. You're developing a hierarchy. Until when the cardinals are meeting, they begin to recognize one of those as the presiding cardinal. And in the year 606 AD, they nominated him and gave him the title of 
Pope. And that was the formation of the Catholic Church. Well, that Catholic Church became so corrupt that men tried to reform that. And I know this writing is small here, and I'm going to blow that up for you, but what this describes, and I want you to get this picture here, that what we have in the New Testament is the Lord's church that was going to continue all through the ages. People talk about the church went out of existence in the dark ages. Not so. If that's true, Daniel 2.44, that prophecy failed. Daniel was wrong. The Holy Spirit misled Daniel. The church never went out of existence. It continued. Maybe small in number, but there always has been, there always will be a remnant. That's the promise throughout the Old Testament. Now concerning this church, then by 606, and each one of these little lines represents a century, and I'm going to blow that up a little bit bigger, the, the Roman Catholic Church began to depart and go further and further away from the pages of the New Testament. They became so corrupt politically, doctrinally, and even morally that men began to lead in what they call the Reformation Movement. And in the Reformation Movement, this is the Reformation Movement, and the writing is quite small here, but I would blow that up even bigger for my, my prospect. What I'm trying to illustrate here is, out of this Reformation Movement, what men were trying to do is reform the corruption found within the Catholic Church. And as they did that, they began to form new denominations then that were split off then from the Catholic Church. For example, there were the Anabaptists that started in 1500s, finally developed into the Baptist Church of 1611. There were the Presbyterians led by John Calvin that finally formed in the Presbyterian Church by 1636. And then here is the Congregational Group in 1609 and 16, uh, 1608. 1609, the Episcopal Church here is formed, and off of it split, in the 1700s, the Methodist Church, you have the Lutherans that were formed by Martin Luther in 1630. And then each one of those had various splits and splinters, forming various churches and various denominations. And what I'm trying to illustrate to my candidate that I'm talking to, my prospect I'm trying to teach, is this is an explanation of where all these churches came from. It came from corruption and departing from the Bible. The Bible says there's one church. The Bible says there is one body. And all of this came from leaving the pattern of the New Testament. Now, with that in mind, I want to go to the last point. And maybe what, what I'm hoping will happen with the person I'm teaching, they'll want to know more about that, and they may ask me to come back and talk more about these departures. And I'd be glad to talk about that. Or maybe they want to talk about a particular church that they have some connection with, and I'll be glad to come back and talk about that. But I'm going to leave that for now, even if I'm in my home study. I'm going to leave that and leave that for later time. Now, let's talk about life in the church. This section varies depending on who I'm studying with, so I'm just going to give you a brief description of both categories. And what I generally try to do in a home Bible study is, depending on if they're coming to church a good bit already, I may spend time more on the fear of God, which is the second point here. Or if they're not assembling very much and coming spasmodically I may want to spend some time on assembling and worship. I want to talk about what life is like in the church. So let me just quickly mention these points. I want to leave with my prospect or the person that I've just baptized or maybe think I'm about to baptize that life in the church involves, involves assembling and worship. That our purpose is to honor and to praise God. And I'll show passages that talk about God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of worship. We're commanded to worship God. How important worship is, less important things should not hinder us like persecution, Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 25. I might talk about the acts of worship, what we do in worship and why, and take each of those passages and read them carefully to them. 
and show that we are to sing because of Ephesians 5. We're to pray because of Acts chapter 2. And we are to have the Lord's Supper as in Acts chapter 20. Two of those are limited to the first day of the week. And furthermore, the attitude with which we are to do that, sincere and from the heart, and what we accomplish when we worship is we edify and we're edified, we're built up spiritually. Now, I may spend a great deal of time on that. If they're not attending very much already, to show them the importance of worshiping faithfully and diligently and may go forego the rest of the study, because that may be what they need. If they're already doing that, I may move on and talk about walking in the fear of God and what fear means, because the fear of God is at the heart of all that we do. And so I may talk about those who fear God are those who please God. And that here's what it means to fear God. It's two sides of a coin. It means to have awe and respect for God, like in Luke chapter 7. By the way, that's a classic in defining that aspect of fear, and it involves being afraid of God. 1 Samuel eleven seven is a classic in defining that aspect of fear. And then what it causes us to do is whatever God says, to be dedicated to hate sin and to honor God and respect his word. Now, I know that's a hurried look at that last section. But what I'm trying to get before you is I've put more material in this than I can cover in a home Bible study. But I do that on purpose. I'm going to go the direction that I need to go for the person I'm trying to study with. So if they need more emphasis on assembling and worshiping, I'm going to do that and forego this. And we may talk about the fear of God later. Or if I think they need more of what the fear of God means, being dedicated, devoted, doing what God says, having respect for God and respect for his word, I may camp on that and forego the other. And that's the end of my home Bible study. Now, each time at the end, I've been asking the person, do you want to study the next lesson? I limited this to five on purpose. But I would make the offer to my friend that I'm willing to study even more. If you want to study some more, anytime, just let me know, and I'll be glad to come back and study with you. If they've been baptized, I want to offer to study with them more to help build them and get them a, a good footing as they have just become a Christian, whatever the case may be. But that is the series of Back to the Bible. I hope you'll make some use of that one way or the other. Either develop your own material um, or use some of this or go to the YouTube and show it to your friend or to your neighbor there. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?